OTB Sports Radio. Football never stops, and neither do we. Don't, don't shoot, don't, don't shoot. Oh. oh, he dinged it. Oh! oh! It's a goal! It's a goal! The Football Show is the only place to get the best analysis. We've tried this way, and we've been trying it for a long time, and it's just active process now. Best interviews. There was talk that you used to go commando when you played, and... Uh... Yeah, I did, yeah. I never, never wore pants. Still don't wear pants. And best opinions and all things from across the pond and here in Ireland. Live every night from 9pm on OTB Sports Radio. I listen all the time. Get OTB Sports Radio online at offtheball.com forward slash radio or on your phone by downloading the Go Loud app. The OTB Podcast Network. OTB Gold. The very best of Off The Ball. OTB Gold is our very best stuff from the very beginning of Off The Ball and we're delighted to bring it to you here. We're going to bring you back to 2016 and to a really brilliant interview that we did with Catherine Switzer. If you're not familiar with her story, in 1967 she became the first woman to complete the Boston Marathon as a timed entry, even though women weren't allowed to enter at the time. Here's Joe Malloy talking to Switzer about why she defied the rules and if she knew how much of an impact it would eventually have going forward OTB Gold Turning to a story that we've wanted to cover in the show for a long time and I'm delighted to say we're joined on the line by Catherine Switzer Catherine you're very welcome to Off The Ball I'll be honest with you what really made us stop as we were researching your story was that photo the iconic picture from the Boston Marathon in 1967 but we might start a little bit just before that you're a 19 year old journalism major and you're in Syracuse University and you love running and you fancy running in the Boston Marathon. Why don't we maybe pick up the story from there? Yeah, it's amazing because, um, and thank you for having me. Wonderful to be here, and hello to everybody in Ireland. I'm talking from New York today. Right. And, um, and it's our Thanksgiving week, so it's a wonderful, wonderful festive time to, to chat and share this story. Um, yeah, 19 years old. I was a journalism student because I wanted to be close to sports and I wanted to be a sports writer. And I was at Syracuse University, which had a wonderful degree program there, because I knew I was never going to allowed to be an athlete. You know, it was amazing. I I had been running, I'd been playing field hockey, but that was going to be it. Once you got to university, it was all over for girls because the guys had all the scholarships, they had the big teams, they had professional sports. And I said, okay, well that's the way the system is. But I can write about it and I can be close. To to it. And I felt that then it would never be like going to work for the rest of my life because mm-hmm. I could always be doing something I loved. So while I was there, seeing there were no girls sports, I thought, well, maybe I could run with the men's cross country team because I was running three miles a day and I thought that was an awful lot. <laughs> and I, I went out and asked the coach and he, he about died laughing. Um, but he said, you can't run officially on the team. It's against the NCAA rules and collegiate sports. But you can come out and work out with the team if you'd want to. Um, we'd welcome you. And, and it was a joke because he never thought I would show up. But I did. And the guys were wonderful and very encouraging. And one guy in particular who had worked out with the team for many years was actually the university mailman who is now very old. I mean, he was 50. Can you imagine? Uh, <laughs> used to be a great runner, and he was so excited about seeing me out there, felt sorry for me, and sort of took me under his wing and began running with me very slowly every day and built up my mileage. And he had been, um, he had run the Boston Marathon 15 times and told me these wonderful stories about it. So I kind of grew up all those months of that year hearing about every story in the Boston Marathon and falling in love with the event until one night I said to him, hey, let's just quit talking about the Boston Marathon and run it. 
And that's when he revealed um, what so many people were like in those days, that even though he thought it was wonderful I was running, he didn't believe any woman anywhere could run a marathon. And we argued and argued, and, uh, and 10 miles in a blizzard one night, um, I told him that he didn't have a running partner unless he believed a woman could do it. And finally he said, if any woman could, you could, but you'd have to show me in practice. So that really became my goal. It was to show Arnie that I could do the distance, and we did. Now, one day we went out to run the 26 miles. We actually ran 31. I wanted to really prove to him, nail it shut, you know, that I could do it. And he passed out at the end of the workout. <laughs> and after that, he became like an evangelist for women's running. We had discovered an amazing thing that women get better as the distance gets longer, and that's what proved out to me. So true to his word, he helped me sign up for the Boston Marathon because my reward was if I proved to him I could do it in practice, he would take me. How pervasive was his opinion? It was very pervasive. Unbeknownst to me, he would be, um, as I said, he was a university mailman. He would go back to the uh, the office and, and clock out with the, at the post office, and the guys there were teasing him, saying, you know, you're going to ruin that girl. She's going to get big legs. She's going to get hair on her chest. She's never going to have kids. Um, and he was afraid um, that he, not only that women couldn't do it, but somehow he would ruin me as a, as a woman. Um, and, of course, I thought this was ludicrous. You know, every, every day we were running together. I think Arnie felt like we were going to fall off a flat earth. And every day I felt like we were running, that we were Magellan, that we were discovering a whole new world. It mm -hmm. was, was amazing. So anyway, true to his, his, his word, he helped me sign up. And, of course, now you know the story. I signed the entry form, KV Switzer, because, um, you know, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be like T.S. Eliot and J.D. Salinger. And also my name was misspelled on my birth certificate, so it was always misspelled. And about 12, I started signing my name with my initials. When I signed the entry form for Boston, which, by the way, had nothing about gender on it, or nothing about gender in the rule books for women running a marathon. I mean, mm. people, people just didn't believe a woman could run that far. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, such, a, it was such a foreign idea that it yeah. was inconceivable a woman would enter. So they, did, they didn't actually even bother prohibiting women technically from entering. That's right. I mean, it never would have occurred to them that a woman would want to run. Now, having said that, women had run a marathon distance before, um, including even at Boston, a woman had jumped out of the bushes the year before and, and ran the distance. But people, in, in, guys, didn't make that count and um, didn't believe it. So Arnie said, you know, you've done this. You need to officially sign up. This is a serious race. So I paid my $2 entry fee, which is another great joke. <laughs> Since I think it's $250 down in or Boston. Um, and um, along with some members of the cross-country team, you know, we went off to Boston together. And I was full of confidence and very, very excited. I knew I could do the distance. Mm. And um, I knew I was going to be noticed. Um, yeah. uh, but Arnie said, and I'm proud of you. And when I got there, uh, the start line, it was snowing and sleeting, so I was wearing a baggy warm-up suit. That's another coincidence that was amazing, because it could have been a hot, sunny day, and I, I would have been very noticed in a shorts and T-shirt. Mm. Um, and all the guys would come up to me and say, you know, help me, give me some tips for my wife or my girlfriend. I'd wish she would run, and good luck, and it was very motivational. Yeah, so the other competitors weren't saying, what the hell are you doing here? Yeah, it wasn't that way at all. I happen to think that male runners are, are, are completely different from a lot of other athletes. You know, they were very welcoming and, and very kind. Uh, it, was, it was amazing. Yeah. Um, and well, Catherine, sorry to jump in. I'm just, I'm just curious. Yeah. Obviously, running 
you loved running deeply. But when you look back now on that day when you turned up to the race, how much of this was just purely about the fact that you loved running and why shouldn't you do the marathon? And how much of this did you feel would be a symbolic move for women's rights? Um, first of all, I didn't think it would be a symbolic move for women's rights at all. I don't think I was that mature. I had just turned 20. Yeah. Um, I thought it was women's fault that they didn't understand how wonderful sports was um, and that if they had a lack of opportunities, it was somehow their own fault. Um, and I was very proud of myself. And I loved the idea of the distance, but in my heart, I just I really loved running. Yeah. And I, I felt... The longer the race was, the better I could be, and I felt really, really empowered by running in general. And that we, we could skip ahead now 50 years, and I could tell you that's the reason why the women's running boom, boom is so massive and, and getting bigger, uh, because it's about empowerment. It's not about competition. It's about women feeling they can conquer anything and do anything and have a sense of self-esteem and confidence. That's really what it's all about with women. And that's why it's becoming so popular. I wanted every woman to feel that way, and I felt, well, why don't they get it? And it wasn't until I was in the race that I understand why. Yeah. And now you probably want me to tell the story about what happened next, right? Yeah, you're two miles in. You're jogging <laughs> yeah. along with Tom Miller, your boyfriend at the time, and Arnie's there, and you're two miles in, and you're thinking, okay, this is okay. Yeah, we're having a good time, and, and the press truck comes by us. And I, I, I have to say that my boyfriend um, was running with us at the very last moment. He decided he would run because he was an ex-All-American football player um, and now was training for the Olympics to, in the hammer throw. So he was a very big guy. Mm. And he, uh, he was a great athlete. And the problem is he always told everybody he was a great athlete. <laughs> <laughs> and he had said, well, if a girl can run the mar- Boston Marathon, I can run the Boston Marathon, so I'm coming along. And right. no amount of me t- trying to dissuade him would help. So anyway, there was, was my boyfriend also. So at two miles, the press truck came by us, and we waved, and, and we're having a good time. When the race director, there were two race directors, the co-race director lost his temper. He was getting teased by the journalists on the truck, totally unbeknownst to us, about a girl being in his race. And he jumped off the bus and came up behind me running very fast. I didn't see him. I only heard him at the last minute. And he just grabbed me by the shoulders and spun me back. And he said, get the hell out of my race and give me those numbers. And he tried to rip off my bib numbers. He was a fiery Scotsman named Jock Semple, and mm. he was known to have a very short fuse and, and to push people around. And, of course, on this day, he was an overworked, tired race director, and it was snowing and everything was going badly for them. And um, he attacked me, and, and my coach, Arnie, screamed, leave her alone, leave her alone. She's okay. I've trained her. And he said, you stay out of this, and he grabbed me again. I was trying to get away from him, and he pulled me back, reined me in with my shirt, and kept swiping at my numbers. When my boyfriend, who came in handy at that point, um, charged and gave him a shoulder charge and sent him flying and out of the race. And Arnie screamed, run like hell, and and down the street we went. And it was a terrible moment. It it really was. It because this all happened in front of the press truck. And as I tell it, I know the listeners were probably laughing their behinds off because it's funny in the retelling. It's yeah. a girl wanting to run and being rescued by her burly boyfriend. And But at the time, it was terrible because it was humiliating and 
embarrassing, and he, he made me, the official made me not only scared and terrified, but also like I had somehow invaded a, a sacred race, that I wasn't at all welcome. Um, it's awful, really. Yeah, it is awful. And the, the, the thing is that's, that's ironic is that my coach and I sat down and we followed the rules to the letter, getting travel permits and, and physical certificates, all these things that you had to do in those days, and, um, and, and trying to do it correctly and finding out, you know, that, that it didn't matter. The, the official um, got up and we got back on the bus and went, went past us and shook his fist at us and cursed at us and said that we were in big trouble, and if I could do a Scottish brogue, I would. But mm. um, he then went on to the start of the race, where he should have been in the first place, in my opinion, but, um, and, and, and not only had me disqualified, but had me expelled from the Athletic Federation right. because I'd run with men, because I'd run more than a mile and a half, because I had fraudulently entered the race, he said, and because I had run without a chaperone. I mean, this is 1967. I mean, it was just amazing. Yeah. Again, you have to laugh when you think about it, but being kicked out of the Athletic Federation was like being excommunicated from the church. You know, that meant no more sports for you. And um, and it was curtains. And of course, then my boyfriend was all upset because he wanted to make the Olympic team and he got expelled because he hit an official and on and on it went. Um, I didn't realize I, you were disqualified. Like no, I didn't didn't know that until that night, and I didn't know I was expelled from the federation until the day later when it, a special delivery letter came. Um, not not that it mattered by that time, because by that time we were all screaming mad and never going to have a, anything to do with the AAU again. Anyway, yeah. and, and, and Catherine, talk to us about the fallout because. Well, I suppose a quirk of fate is that Jock Semple, the race director, decides to try and grab you and tell you to get the hell out of the race. But he does it with the press looking on. And so these famous, infamous pictures live on and we're still seeing them today. And and so talk to us about the fallout the next morning. Yes, actually, the fallout began happening. um, There were two fallouts. There was a fallout, personal fallout for me when I hit Heartbreak Hill in the race, which is usually where everybody gets the bonk and, and, and goes to pieces. At that moment, I stopped being angry with the official, mm. realized he was just a product of his time, and I felt responsible for my actions. And I said, no, what can I do? This is the moment I went from a girl to a grown woman, is when I made that decision, of course, to finish the race. And then at this point, I realized that other women would be there if they only had opportunities. And I had said to my coach, I'm going to finish this race on my hands and my knees if I have to. But by the time I got to, to, you know, 22 miles, I realized I'm going to change the system. And that's when it became political for me. So when I finished the race, I decided I was going to become a better athlete, but I was also going to become somebody who is going to create opportunities for women in the sport. And that actually created a whole lifetime of work for me and a career and really everything I am today. But that night is when the other fallout happened, is we were driving back to the university and we stopped and we were getting coffee and we saw the newsstand uh, papers. And Mm. it was every edition everywhere, front and back. And and later in the uh, university library, it was all the major papers of the world carried that picture. And and it was polarizing and very political because people were saying, well, if she can run it, why don't they let her? Because I did finish the race. And then other people were saying that's inappropriate for women. We shouldn't let women do that. You know, they're going to injure themselves. This is a male domain. When is this going to stop? 
and here I was, you know, both held up as Joan of Arc and, and, then, and then pilloried yeah. by great groups of people. And how was that for you at 19? And also, did you have any sense of who was in the majority or what, what general public opinion was? First of all, I knew running had to, was a holy, holy of force for good. There could be nothing wrong with it. And I felt so great that everybody should feel like this. And I know I'm a bit of a Pollyanna, but the more you run, the more fearless you become. And so running was always the victory under my belt that nobody could take away from me. And so I felt very, very empowered by that and very, very stubborn and very, very resolute. So when the hate mail came, you know, I threw it away. Um, and I kept the good stuff. And and more and more people, women especially, would write to me and say that if I would take part in a race, they would come too because mm-hmm. they, they didn't want to do it by themselves. And then it became um, a matter of lobbying, working with other women, and getting women official in the sport. But that took a long time. And it took me, I think, 18 months before I got reinstated back into the AAU. And then you know what you have to do is you have to work in the system. You can't just keep fighting the system. You have to work in the system, work around the system, kind of come through the system. Um, and we began working with the, the rules and regulations. And I say we because that time there were a coterie of women who really wanted to run. And finally, after five years, we got women official in the Boston Marathon. And, of course, Jock Semple himself had to welcome us into the race. Was he still there then? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we came and ran every year. Anyway, we just we would just, just turned up. It, we would just turn up and filter out of the bushes, and pretty soon he was beginning to look very, very foolish because we were running extremely well. Yeah. I mean, we had women down under three hours in those days, and finally he had to welcome us into the race. Steam was still coming out of his ears. <laughs> um, I, I podiumed in that race, and, and so he had to give me a trophy, and the trophy was broken. And when he handed it to me, he was very apologetic about it being, well, he wasn't too apologetic, but he handed me this broken trophy and promised to replace it. But then he said, um, you, I've been mad at you for five years, and you deserve a broken trophy. <laughs> wow. He sounds like a hell of a guy. But you know what? He came up and kissed me on the starting line the following year. Nice. Um, by then, I was like re- really w- well ranked and and was running incredibly well. And and he said, "Come on, lass, let's get a wee bit of notoriety." <laughs> and that was the picture that was run in the New York Times because it was you know this is the end of an era. Mm. If Jock Semple finally welcomes women into the Boston Marathon, and he and I became best of friends. Oh really? We, yes, we used to go around and make make uh, talks together. He always maintained he was right, <laughs> which always provided the audience with a huge laugh. Um, and I went to visit him just a few hours before he died, and um, his last words to me were, "I made you famous, Les." <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Yeah, yeah, but you know what? If if people really, if there's any anybody listening to this, I guess what I'd like them to think is that sometimes the worst things in your life can become the best things in your life if if you try to make it right and it creates an opportunity and it can change the world. Certainly for me, I looked at these lack this lack of opportunities. I wrote a proposal, many proposals, but to one big corporation, Avon, the world's largest cosmetics company at the time. Mm. Um, they hired me, um, and I organized a global series of races for women around the world uh, over 10 years. We eventually, we had 27 countries, 400 races, and a million women, and were able to lobby all those different countries to get the women's marathon into the Olympic Games, and did that by 1984. Now, 
from 1972 to get the marathon into the Olympic Games by 1984 for the IOC, International Olympic Committee, that is warp speed, mm. okay? And it was the really global admission now that women can excel in the toughest event in the Olympic Games at, at the highest level. And um, it changed world thinking about women's capability. It, it, was, it was, to me, almost as important as giving women the right to vote. So that was, that was a banner year. And it continues. You know, as I say, you know, right now in the United States and in Canada, there are more women runners than there are men. It is amazing. It's 58%. Can you imagine in my lifetime? Yeah. That is phenomenal. And then another story. Do we have time for one other story? Oh, listen, we've all the time. Oh, God, this is the greatest story. Wait for this now, because, um, you know, I'm 67. I'm still running. I'm still running marathons, da-da-da-da-da. But just about the time I thought, well, okay, it's time to sit back and write another book and, and, and slow down a little bit. My old bib number that Jock Semple tried to pull off of me in the Boston Marathon, which was number 261, mm. has now become this magic number, like a cult number around the world for fearlessness because of that photograph that you're talking about. Yeah. People Google it up and they say, look at this. And she finished the race and she kept that number. And 261 makes me feel fearless too. So. I may be wearing 8,452 in the New York City Marathon tomorrow, but I'm putting 261 on my back. And they're inking it on their arms. And then I thought, isn't this amazing? Because they were sending me all the pictures and from around the world. Extraordinary. Yeah. One last question, I guess, to bring it to a close. I mean, it is, it is just extraordinary to think how different your life might have been if Jock decides not to try and grab your number with the press looking on. And that's, you know, the parallel universe and a sliding doors moment. But... Greg Leganis talks about sport being meditation and motion. I always thought it was a beautiful line, meditation and motion. And there is something very special about being on a road on your own. No music in your ears, just the, the rhythm of your steps. And I don't know, what does running mean to you? What is running? There's something spiritual about it. There's something, there's something other about it, I think. Totally. I totally agree with that. And if... Jock Semple had not attacked me in the Boston Marathon, I'd still be a, a lifelong proponent for getting women, especially men and women, out running. Because running, in a way, has given me everything in my life. You know, it's given me my health and my travel, my career. Um, it's given me my husband, who I met, you know, running. Um, it's given me my religion, because I feel closer to the universe than at any other time when I'm out running. I, I mean, I'm part mm. of the sun, the earth, the wind. Um, it's given me a sense of empowerment and strength. Um, it's given me my creativity. I get all my best story ideas for books and articles when I'm out running. But I think most of all, what running means to me is that it's given me myself. It's given me my chance out on the road or in the woods or on trails alone, as you say, without music, just thinking about what it all means and, and where my place is and, and that this is what it's all about. And so I often say it's given me everything, especially myself. Catherine, listen, it's been one of the most enjoyable conversations I've had in a long time. Thank you so much. It's been Thank great. Thank you so much. Let's keep in touch and all my best to your listeners. And um, hey, come and join us. OTB Gold. The very best of Off the Ball. That was an OTB Podcast Network presentation.